motion picture screen explodes with unprecedented power as the two masters of imagination, Jules Verne and Walt Disney, join to bring you a shattering new experience in entertainment. Read by countless millions, translated into 18 languages, this classic adventure is a story of measureless scope, fraught with fantastic beauty and danger. Four great stars give the spark of life to its leading characters in a series of inspirational performances. Kirk Douglas as the master harpooner, Ned Land. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lads, the whale of a tail or two. About the flat little fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoos. James Mason is Captain Nemo, who held the destiny of the world in his hands. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Paul Lucas as Professor Aranax of the Paris Institute. I asked you to leave, Professor. You also asked me ashore to show me man's inhumanity to man. Why? To justify this, you are not only a murderer, you are a hypocrite. The proof lies out there. You call that murder? Peter Lorre as Conceal. Sure, we're friends. Go ahead. Hit me. Hmm? Hit me. You mean that? Sure, go ahead. You can't miss it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now we are friends. The most vivid scenes from the novel become unforgettable on the screen. The luxurious interior of the submarine. The revelation of the hidden mysteries of the deep. We do our hunting and farming here. Underwater? The sea supplies all my wants. The mighty harvests of the ocean kingdom. And the strange creatures that menace the intruders on the ocean floor. And after a safe return, the memorable dinner party. It's remarkable. This tastes like veal. The flavor deceives you. That is filet of sea snake. Hmm? I guess this isn't lamb. That is brisket of blowfish with sea squared dressing, basted in barnacles. <clears throat> what is it? That's a recipe of my own. Sote of unborn octopus. <laughs> And to stay in your memory as the most thrilling sequence ever photographed in motion picture history, the terrifying battle with the giant squid.
Hello and welcome to the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and we're here to talk about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, One of the towering literary figures of the 19th century, Jules Verne, died in 1905. Fifty years later, Verne's books went out of copyright, allowing Hollywood to produce film adaptations of his most famous works. One of the best, certainly one of the most famous, of these is Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, starring Kirk Douglas, James Mason, Peter Lorre, and Paul Lucas. Here with me to discuss this wonderful movie is a man no stranger to underwater adventures, fellow Aquaman fan, Sean Myers. Sean, welcome back to the show. Howdy, Rob. Howdy. I'm so happy to have you here. I know you are a huge fan of this movie, as am I. And you're a big Disney guy, right? I mean, you've been to Disney World like a gajillion times. <laughs> Not a gajillion. <laughs> it's it's under 10. So in the Disney world, I'm a newbie. But I am... I'm not a Disney expert, but I am a Disney enthusiast. Okay. Now, what is your history with this movie? Did you see it as a kid? I actually did not see this as a kid. Um, My history with 20,000 Leagues started um, a lot of time with DVD. The Disney company was kind of late a little bit to the DVD market, but they made up for it because they released uh, what were called Vault Disney collections. Ah, yes. So they had the first four, which were Old Yeller, Parent Trap, Swiss Family Robinson, and Pollyanna. And all of those movies I had seen and loved. Then they came out with another batch of them, which actually weren't labeled Vault Disney, but were exactly the same. They're two-disc collections. Uh, They are absolutely spectacular. And one of them was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I had always wanted to see. So I thought, well, these collections are so wonderful, I'm going to buy it without having seen it before. And I watched it, and I just thought it was spectacular. I was just so amazed and impressed with it. Yeah, I mean, this same thing. I didn't see this movie. I, I've never been a big Disney guy, even when I was a kid. I mean, my parents certainly took me to Disney movies and stuff, but it was just never really my speed. And I, this movie... Uh, I never saw it on VHS. I think, like you, I don't maybe didn't see it till till DVD. And I'd always heard about it, and I always loved the original story. I read the book, you know, and it's there's been numerous adaptations of. There's even a Power Record adaptation of it, so I was familiar with it from from that. And then when I finally saw this, I was just like, this is such a wonderful adventure. I mean, this is. I mentioned. I think I used this phrase when I was uh, when we did the episode on Raiders of the Lost Ark. But like, this is a capital A adventure movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it just and it's all of Disney's sort of like all the all the the, the creativity they had to, to put on this movie uh, was was used for this production. It's directed by uh, Richard Fleischer, who had like one of the great Hollywood careers. Uh, he directed a Mr. Majestic, Soiling Green, Doctor Doolittle, Compulsion, uh, the film noir classic Narrow Margin. Um, he ended his career with. Uh, Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonia. The less is said about that, the better, obviously. But, uh, and he's the son of Max Fleischer, the, the famous animator, Max Fleischer, who did all the great Superman cartoons of the 40s. And at the time, uh, apparently it was, it was uh, Walt Disney himself who handpicked Richard Fleischer to direct this movie. And he apparently had some sort of lunch with Walt Disney and said, do you know whose son I am? Because uh, him, <laughs> him and Max Fleischer were sort of competitors. And apparently Disney said, 
no, I understand, and you know, I think you're the best guy for this movie, so it doesn't matter that that you're who your father is, which I that's a extraordinarily sort of uh, generous thing to to say to him. As I mentioned, it stars Paul Lucas and uh, Peter Lorre, and of course Kirk Douglas and James Mason, and a great performance as, as Captain Nemo. I think most people that have, even if you've never seen this movie or you've read the book, you're familiar with the plot. Professor Aranax, played by Paul Lucas, and his servant Conseil, played by Peter Lorre, go on a sea voyage to locate a mysterious sea creature that is destroying ships and disrupting shipping lanes. But what they encounter instead is a submarine, and when they fall aboard, along with the bombastic and hot-headed harpooner Ned Land, Kirk Douglas, they climb aboard the submarine, the Nautilus. The captain of the Nautilus, James Mason, at first threatens to kill them, but relents when he sees how Aranax is willing to die with his friends rather than be spared alone. He has a potential purpose in mind for Professor Aranax. In the meantime, he shows Aranax the submarine and how it works while Ned Land and Conceal scheme and plot to escape. Now, there's a lot more to this movie, a whole lot more, but that's the basic setup of this movie. And that what Richard Fleischer and his screenwriter, Earl Flint, decided to do with the original book was make it a jailbreak story. Because the book is very episodic, and they decided they needed some sort of like sort of through line. So they wanted to make it that, uh, that the Peter Lorre and Kirk Douglas characters were, wanted to escape the Nautilus. And that's sort of the, the spine of this movie. Uh, have you read the original book, Sean? I have not. I was not familiar with that at all. Okay, I've read the I've read the book and I like it. And Jules Verne is one of those guys who's I think his stories because of course he wrote so many famous science fiction stories. He's a good kind of entry level author if you're kind of if you're a comic book fan and you're moving from comic books to prose novels. Him and H. G. Wells are like I think probably the first two authors that you read mm-hmm. because a lot of their material is you know you're like oh I can, you know it's about like science fiction and outer space and you know ships and all this kinds of crazy stuff and so it's a good midpoint between. Uh, you know, comic books and sort of, you know, actual literary novels and stuff. But, I mean, uh, I, I I like what Fleischer does with it. I mean, of course, they take a lot, they take, I was about to say a lot, they take all of the, the political commentary out of, out of Jules Verne's uh, story. Because, of course, in the original novel, Nemo is Indian. Uh, and he is, oh. he is, he's bombing uh, these ships because it's a, it's a protest against, uh, British imperialism, and of course, in this movie, Nemo is British, played by James Mason. So they took all of that stuff out. And uh, one of the other uh, things that um, that Fleischer felt he had to address is, of course, when Verne wrote the original story, submarines were the sort of you know miraculous idea. And of course, by 1954, submarines were not so much. They were, we were you know society was used to them. So we really had to kind of ramp it up and make the Nautilus this amazing sort of scientific steampunk. Uh, science fiction idea and and set wise this is really one of the most beautiful sets i think any walt disney film ever had i mean these things are just gorgeous every scene in this movie especially the nautilus is just so gorgeous to look at when you when you hear people say the set design is sumptuous they could definitely apply that to this movie um Every scene in the submarine, there are 10,000 things to look at. Mm -hmm. Just the way it's designed, the color usage, especially in Nemo's cabin, Nemo's lair. Um, And kind of speaking of lair, when you were talking about comic book fans liking Jules Verne, um, Captain Nemo is such a Batman villain. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because he has such world domination plans. He has a tragic backstory he's charismatic i mean he i actually didn't realize that until watching it i watched it two or three times in preparation for this and halfway through the first viewing i'm like 
he's a Batman villain. Yes, yeah, yeah, very much. He's he's got a, he's got a super cool ride, you know, and he's got he's got his plans on world domination. Yeah, it's absolutely, and and he's totally convinced in the rightness of his cause. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, ex- exactly, and and also you're wondering like, well, why are all these sailors following him? Why are they willing to do whatever he wants? And that's told in his backstory. They were all prisoners. And Captain Nemo was the one who led them to their freedom, led them to their escape. So it's easy to believe that they now put all of their trust and belief and faith in him. Oh, yeah. And they all dress like uh, like henchmen from the Batman, <laughs> from the Batman TV series. And they've all had those little like uh, Arthur Treacher outfits or whatever they got on. I mean, you expect them to have on their shirts like, you know, Minnow and Guppy or whatever they are. Goo number one and goo number two. I mean, yeah, absolutely. He is really like an early supervillain. The original idea, of course, in the book, Aranax is the main character. Uh, it's the story told from his point of view because it's his journal. He's keeping a journal of what's happening. But the minute they cast Paul uh, Kirk Douglas in the role of Ned, you can't help but make him be the main character because he's Kirk Douglas. He's Kirk Douglas in his prime. And it, it is funny because of the four main characters, even when doing my notes, even when watching these, I always forgot the actor's name. I forgot the professor's name. I would always call him Professor. I just could not remember him because of the four it's it's not that his role is diminished, but the other three are just so powerful. Like the, yeah. they're great actors. They're very cinematic. Everything that they do is very distinct. Like they're just marvelous. Yeah, when I mean, when we first meet Ned, uh, he's got a girl on each arm, uh, <laughs> which he uh, apparently Kirk Douglas specifically asked to be added. Uh, to the screenplay so he could appear woman, you know, very like a womanizer and, and he gets into a fight. That was another thing he didn't want to, he had a very macho image on screen and he wanted to keep that going. So, you know, his first scene, he was with two women and then he gets into a big brawl. He gets a musical number, the whale of a tail song. I mean, so he gets like, all, and his uniform, everybody else is in kind of blues and grays mm-hmm. and unit colors. And of course he's in this bright red and white striped shirt. So, I mean, he pops off, even in a, a, a movie as beautiful as this, he pops off the screen because he just doesn't look like anybody else in the movie. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it, it's, it's funny you're mentioning the, A Whale of the Tale because th- this is a Disney movie, but of any stereotypical Disney movie, this is probably the least stereotypical Disney movie. But they did manage to put in a song, a fantastic song, right. and an animal sidekick, yep, and yep. even even just a shade of animation with some of the fish. But it's not – anyone who isn't into Disney could easily watch this, not realize it, it's Disney, and still love it. Yeah, I mean it, it gets into some of the backstory. I mean as you talk about like the, the reason that Nemo's doing what he's doing, they get into a little bit of like when we go to the prison island, which by the way is called Rurapente, which is – Absolutely fantastic because, of course, Star Trek Sex took that and used it in, in, for, for the prison planet. It's, it's just literally called Rurapente. They didn't even bother to change it, which is really fantastic. But, I mean, all that, like, the, all of Nemo's backstory is, like, a little gritty, you know? It's mm-hmm. definitely more gritty than what you typically expect for a Disney film in 1954. Um, and, and the thing that's amazing, like, there's no doubt that this is family entertainment. So, like, you know, kids can watch this and enjoy, like, the adventures and the sea lion and everything like that. But there, there is a lot of stuff for adults in here. And it just, it just amazes me that in the 50s, this was family entertainment. And it's so deep and substantial and just a full story. 
Yeah, I mean, I said it, it's 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 really it's a wonderful kind of it's got like a pirate aspect to it. It's a wonderful kind of adventure movie. I had a chance to see this on the big screen a couple of years ago when uh, oh, Cinemark wow. Cinemark showed it as part of their classic series, and I took my nephew to it because I was like, we have to see this on the big screen. And I mean, again, all the opening stuff with the uh, the, the first of all, the first shot we get in the Nautilus as it's going through the water, and we just see the glowing eyes as it's approaching the boat. Like that's just beautiful. It's like that. This is what I always hoped an Aquaman movie would look like. I know we're not going to get that obviously because we know what an Aquaman movie is going to look like. But this is what I always imagined an Aquaman movie would look like. I mean, that's the Manta ship, pretty much, is the Nautilus. And you have to you have to remember back then. You know, obviously they didn't have cell phones. They they didn't have telephones. They didn't have television. They didn't have anything. They had word of mouth. So to see this thing coming at them in the water, it is easily believable that they would think it's a monster, not a ship. You know, this is a time when sea monsters were maybe still potentially a thing, you know? Um, it, I mentioned earlier at the top of the show about how, uh, you know, Verne's books went out of copyright 50 years after he died. And if you look, you could see all of the big Verne adaptations started coming out in 55, 56, 57. Now, Disney was like a year early uh, to this but it also coincides with the fact that special effects exactly. could start catching up to this. I mean, you really couldn't – I mean, the, we talk about the sets. I mean, uh, by the way, the Nautilus is designed by a guy named Harper Goff, mm -hmm. who was not a member of the Art Directors Union, so he could not be nominated for an Oscar for his work, which is just really sad because he certainly deserved it. But you probably couldn't have really pulled this off. I mean, there was a um, – there's a 1916 adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I've never seen it. I don't even know if it's still around. A lot of silent films are lost forever. But you couldn't, you really couldn't have pulled this off special effects. I and mean, we will get to the big scene at the end where the, the really big effect. But you probably could not have done this even 10 years earlier with the, with the level of special effects that they had available to them. Well, and this is, since you brought up the special effects, I do want to mention, um, as great as the DVD set is, and I wholeheartedly recommend anyone who has any interest in this at all, absolutely get the DVD set. But there is a documentary called Operation Undersea, which isn't on the DVD, but it is available, and we'll talk about that at the end. Um, but they have footage of them filming the underwater scenes, the special effects, um, the cameramen that they actually have underwater footage. It's, it's just amazing. Like the, that actually goes into a little bit more than the special effects than the making of on the mm. DVD. And it's fantastic. They, they actually have footage of them filming the movie. It's, it's just, it's phenomenal. It's, it's great. And to, to have something like this, Disney, Walt Disney, the man was great because for his show at the time called Disneyland, he would basically make almost infomercials. He would have an hour-long program about the making of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And that's what this is, Operation Undersea. It's, it's phenomenal. It's great. I've never seen that. That sounds that does sound great. I love that. That sounds really cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, why not? You know, I mean, you had an hour-long commercial for whatever you were putting out the week. And this was the most expensive film ever made. To date. Even even more so than Gone with the Wind. Wow. Can you imagine that? <laughs> imagine spending <laughs> that kind of money on this. I mean, it's, it's a hell of a gamble. And I'm kind of amazed that um, that Disney didn't do more movies like this, you know? I mean, like they, I mean, other adaptations said there was, like, Five Weeks in a Balloon and Mysterious Island, of course, which is a sequel to this movie. But, like, 
And they, you know, Disney went on to do, they did Swiss Family Robinson, and you mentioned some of the other movies, but they never really did a full-on kind of a quasi-adult adventure like this again, which is strange considering how big of a hit this was. That's what I was just going to say. The, the closest probably would be Swiss Family Robinson, but that definitely is different in tone. And this movie was a hit. This was movie was a hit financially, critically, um, all of the merchandise that was spawned off of it. Um, there's rides at Disneyland, Disney World, and now those are gone or changed. But even in Tokyo Disney Sea, right now, you can ride 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I saw that detail when it said that the, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea submarine voyage ran from 1971 to 1994 and consisted of a submarine ride complete with a giant squid attack and an arrangement of the main theme from the 1954 film playing on Captain Nemo's organ in the background. Now, I was at Disney World in 1990. Or no, 1988. So how did I miss this? How did I not my, go to that? My guess is at that time, and this is where I'm not a Disney expert, just an enthusiast. I think at that time it may have only been running seasonally oh. where it wasn't running all the time. And oh, also <laughs> because of the nature of the ride with it being water-based, at least once a year it had to go down for refurb. Oh, to to rejuvenate everything, to clean everything, make sure everything's running properly. Maybe it was. Oh, maybe I. I have no memory of of you know that. So maybe maybe I tried to see because even though I hadn't seen the movie by the point, I was still into all the visuals. And so I would have loved to have gone to that. I mean, it's really it's amazing when you watch this movie how much stuff in later films was borrowed from it. I mean, like when we, when we first meet Nemo and he's in his his chamber, which you mentioned. It's and it's got it from for it's very similar to what you imagine um, from the the silent uh, version of uh, Phantom of the Opera. Oh, it's yeah. got that giant organ, and then later on, uh, this it, I think it's borrowed pretty heavily for the Abominable Doctor Fives. Because when we first see Vincent Price playing an organ, it's it's virtually the same shot when we see him for the first time as we see Nemo when we introduced to him playing the organ. So I'm like, you know, the, I love that that that's. A Disney film is, you know, been, this has been borrowed later on for a horror movie twenty years later, and it is a great villain reveal, oh, quote yeah. unquote. What and it's think? funny that the organ that he's playing actually is still viewable. That organ is in the haunted mansion at Disneyland. That's oh, I love the that. actual physical organ is at Disneyland. I love that they keep that up. You know, like, I mean, that's, that's such a classic movie prop. That's amazing. I love that that's still around. It's still, still being used. I think that's just so cool. But yeah, I mean, James, James we have, we should have to talk about the cast a little bit here. James Mason is just tremendous in this movie. Uh, I mean, it, I, I think it's again, it says something about Walt Disney that he knew he had to get like a really good solid actor uh, for, for that part. And James Mason was going, you know, he was already on his way to a, you know, an amazing career. He had just done A Star is Born, for mm-hmm. Pete's sakes. And then he went on right after this to do Bigger Than Life, where he plays a, uh, a husband who gets uh, addicted to cortisone and uh, start, wants to murder his family. So, I mean, he was in the <laughs> middle of an amazing career. And it's, he's, he's just tremendous in this part. Well, and obviously with James Smith, it's just that voice. That voice is just spectacular. Like, you, you would follow him just with that magnificent voice of his. Yeah, he's he's great in this. And his whole the whole bit where he's introducing all the food when he talk about that he makes things out of kelp and sea snakes and uh, 
I love, and he seems so utterly reasonable. And like, I love that Kirk Douglas's character is ready to throw up when he hears it. the uh, the burgers that he thinks he's eating, the steak he thinks he's eating is made out of seaweed and all this kind of stuff. Is he, you know, Nemo was into kale way before it was him. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> he he does take health food and uh, organ organic food to the nth degree. Yeah, he's great in this. Um, Peter Laurie, of course. He went on, I mean, everybody knew who Peter Laurie was at this point. He later went on to be in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Uh, and he also was in Five Weeks in a Balloon, which is another Jules Verne story. So he was kind of, he was he was more in the sort of comedic phase in his career. He's, he's He has some serious stuff to do here, but he is much like he would be in the Corman movies in the 60s. He's kind of comedy relief in a lot of ways because he's sort of, He's not terribly brave, and he wants to sort of always just save his skin and stuff, and he, he sort of cuts a, a comedic figure. He's, he's definitely what the average man would do in yes. this situation. Yeah. I, I always love Peter Laurie. I mean, I, he's just fun to see here. I, it's still it's fun to see him in color. I'm still not used to seeing him in color. He did a lot of color movies, but I think of him in black and white, all those you know great horror movies from the 30s. Well, definitely, yeah. yeah. And Paul Lucas, uh, he won an Oscar for Watch on the Rhine. Uh, so he was he was more in the tail end of his career here. I read that he was kind of aloof with the rest of the cast, like he didn't socialize with them and stuff. And I guess maybe he thought he was maybe above this or something, or just wasn't terribly thrilled that he was in this movie. I have what to... I had what I had heard is he actually had a lot of trouble remembering his lines, and I think that attributed to his aloofness. Oh, I wonder. Jeez. I, I saw yeah. that later on after this, he did an Elvis Presley movie, Fun in Acapulco. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine <laughs> him on the set hanging out with Elvis. Like, oh my God, that's talk about a mismatched pair. Uh, by the way, I should mention, uh, Paul Lucas died on the day I was born. So, oh, no. uh, you know, <laughs> take that for whatever it's worth. Uh, and I've said, of course, Kirk Douglas was you know, in the middle of an amazing career. Kirk Douglas, still with us, God bless him. He's like oh, yeah. 101 yeah. years old. Uh, but that's, uh, that's, uh, that's remarkable. But yeah, I mean, he was, he's such a good like, engine in this movie. He's always moving. He kind of reminds me of Popeye. You know, he's kind of has that kind of like, <laughs> like, he's just ready to like, he's always kind of kind of like his arms kind of cocked like he's ready to punch somebody at a moment's notice and the way he sort of carries himself. He's he's just terrific in this movie. And he said, you can't help but pay attention to him. He's ostensibly the main character, even though the, the story is narrated by Aranax. It really is Ned's story more than anybody else's. Oh, absolutely. And especially um, like for the time, 1950s, he is just like that all American man. I mean, he is just, you know, whether it's, you know, like sh- whether he's shaving on deck <laughs> and he's shirtless and he's I mean, he's spe- he's a spectacular man. Like there's just no and his you know, curly blonde hair. I mean, it's just like he's definitely there to lure you in. Yeah, and he shaves with a straight razor, which is always like the manliest of manly things to do. <laughs> uh, do you have a particular favorite set of all the different scenes? Because as I, the movie's playing, as I'm as I'm sitting here and I'm watching some of this stuff, and like the window, like the main window that they look out on when all the guys are on the the, the floor of the ocean, like that big window is beautiful, and it gives you have Nemo's throne room. I mean, just every set in this movie is just gorgeous. I absolutely. It's probably like a quirky detail i love the way the windows open like they slide open almost like uh like the opening credits of james bond like how that like the it's almost like a um, camera viewfinder how that would like spin open mm-hmm. i always i always loved that detail of it 
Yeah, like the Hexfield view screen on Mystery Science Theater that would opens up like Iris is out. I love that. Yeah, it's really beautiful. <laughs> the um, the the scene. The uh, I love the uh, the 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 moment where the um, like it's kind of like the the nuclear powered engine room, and uh, Nemo pulls down this giant iron mask that you have to view it through. <laughs> I love that thing, and I love the um, that you see all the all these little windows, and they're all tiny circular windows, and you see the flames flickering behind them. In like a mosaic. Oh yeah, yeah. Beautiful. It is so beautiful, and just the, again the visual invention that to, for you to come up with that. It just oh my god, I could look at that all day. It's just, again, it's like it's futuristic, but yet it's retro. It really is like that steampunk kind of thing. And actually, I don't I don't know if everyone will get the reference. It it makes me think of in Land of the Lost. They had the pylons where you would turn the little pyramid at the front, you'd be able to go in. And they had, like, the colored rocks that you would change mm-hmm, to... Mm-hmm. You would move to change the weather. Like, any kind of, like, light-up color thing like that always reminds me of the pylons in Land of the Lost. I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, they took that from this movie. I mean, how could you not, you know? I mean, uh, this, this, thing, this movie was so famous and such well, a that, big hit for so long, I would imagine that it was inf- very influential to other creative people. I grew up in this, I was a kid in the 70s, I I was born in 68, so definitely, you know, like the early 70s, 80s, and 20,000 Leagues was still in the vernacular, you know, people would say 20,000 Leagues, and you knew what it was, you knew it was the sub, you knew it was Captain Nemo, you knew it was the organ, and Takata, and Fugue, and D minor, like you had the, the squid attack, like all of those things were still around much more prevalent than they are now. Like, I think most people of our age still remember 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You know, I don't know if a kid 10 or 12 years old today would necessarily know what that is or means. That's, you know, you've distracted me with something by just mentioning that you're older than me. You look, you look fabulous. <laughs> I, I, I'm really, I'm really, I have to exercise more because I've met you in person. I had no idea you were older than me. You look, you look like gangbusters, Sean. You are keeping, I'm sorry. I don't mean to move off this movie, but I can't, well, I can't help but think about that now. <laughs> it's, it's the calamari. It's the squid. It's the it's sea snakes, the... man. You are, you do You're doing a good job. You're holding up quite well. I'm impressed. Uh, but yeah, well, it's, it's funny that, um, that not, not meaning to jump ahead, but you, you've mentioned it and now it's on my mind of that. It's strange that there has not been another version of this movie. Uh, there has, you know, there's been other loose versions. Um, d- apparently Dino De Laurentiis took out a full page ad in variety <laughs> in 1984, announcing a remake and Richard Lester was going to direct. I guess he wanted to insert, uh, Dino De Laurentiis wanted more uh, roller skating uh, d- d- disco guys in this. Yeah, really. <laughs> but Dino De Laurentiis was, uh, was suffering from a string of flops and he was unable to find funding. So they never made it. There is a version called 30,000 leagues under the sea, which stars, get this, Lorenzo Lamas as as Aranox and Sean Lowler as Captain Nemo. Kerry Washington is in it. Of course, she starts in Scandal now. I'm betting she really doesn't want anybody going around mentioning that. But, I mean, and um, uh, David Fincher had been talking about doing one for a while with Brad Pitt. Uh, He wanted Brad Pitt to play Ned, but apparently that has fallen apart as well. 
Uh, briefly, McGee was attached to doing a version. Uh, Thank God that didn't go anywhere. Yeah, really. Um, the Fincher version was intriguing because that seems like this seems like a very light story for him. But that would have been interesting. But apparently, that that's he's he's moved off that as well. I was gonna say with David Fincher, I would be on board with that. Yeah. Oh, oh very good. <laughs> it took me a second. A little slow. But I mean, yeah, I think that I think that's. It's kind of interesting that there is no more modern version of it. So if, if any kid is ever going to be familiar with it, it's going to be this one because that's the only one that's really you know that's that's famous. I mean, it's again, it's on DVD, it's on Blu-ray, it's on iTunes. I purchased it on iTunes just a couple of days ago. But uh, yeah, I wish this was something that you could see more on the big screen because it really deserves it. It's so beautiful to look at. I do hope um, talking about like bringing it back into public consciousness. Um, Disney is going to start its own streaming service. Right, um, right. I guess that's going to start 2019. And I definitely hope that they are going to include like the classic movies, like we had talked about Parent Trap, uh, Swiss Family Robinson, especially 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Because I do think that's, I don't know if that's the only way kids are going to get it, but you know, kids will have the Disney streaming service, absolutely. And there will be some kids who are fans of Disney, so they're going to watch everything. They're going to watch the big, the big deal movies that they've heard of. And, and I think that's the way to get the new generation, is as long as these old movies are in the Disney streaming service, I think it'll definitely help propel them for that next generation. Do you think pacing-wise kids would have a problem with this, or do you think it's when you're younger you just accept what you watch and you're not, you're not really comparing it to Because, I mean, I think this movie moves quite well, but by modern standards it's like virtually any movie made 50, 60 years ago. It moves a little slow, at least compared to the crazy frenetic pace of modern blockbusters. I actually do even have it in my notes that it surprises me because the template that this movie follows is actually something that they follow now, where how one of the first things that happens, well, the very first thing that happens once the storybook opens is the sub-attack. Like, the, the Nautilus attacks a ship. That's one of the first things that kicks off the story. So I think that goes a long way in hooking the kids' interest. I know a lot of times, like, you know, and I love adventure movies from the 50s and 60s, but a lot of times it's all, you know, exposition for the first hour, then you get into the excitement. This one is great because it starts off with the attack. You see the Nautilus's eyes through the water. That's the you know one of the first things you see, and I think that would help as far as the pacing. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, you, I mean it's kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You have like this big action set piece right at the beginning to right. set the tone, and then you can establish all the characters because this movie does then go back you know back to America and it establishes the the whole thing of that the, there's these newspaper stories and like it's become a big press thing where they want to find out what's what this monster is it's attacking the shipping lanes and uh, when they talk to Aranex the one reporter you know and they, they asking Aranex and Aranex is of course a scientist and he you know he, he doesn't believe this is a sea monster and then we see the one guy making like a drawing of what yeah. the sea monster and he's like you, you need to add wings to it and then we see the newspaper and the thing looks like the Jersey Devil or something. Um, I do need to mention a couple of the side actors uh, in those early scenes because uh, it, it relates to something I love. First of all, one of the reporters is played by Herb Vigren, uh, who was in White Christmas. He, yep. he plays Novello, the, 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 the uh, lounge owner in White Christmas. He was also the voice of Sad Sack 
on the radio, which uh, Shag and I just talked about on the Fire and Water podcast not that long ago. And the, the guy who is driving the coach that Aaron X comes in on is Percy Helton, who played uh, the conductor, or not the conductor, but like the, the train, the, the, the ticket agent, in also White Christmas. So these two guys were both in White Christmas together. Percy Helton did White Christmas and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea back-to-back and those were the number one and number two most successful movies of 1954. So <laughs> Percy Helton had a good year, man. <laughs> he's, he's box office gold. Box office gold, Percy Helton. Absolutely. I love it. It's fantastic. Uh, but yeah, I love, again, I love seeing all those like old-timey actors. But uh, uh, another thing I wanted to mention in terms of the influence of this movie, when we first see Nemo, uh, well, not when we first see him, but his first scene where he comes in, out of the water in his diving helmet, the mm-hmm. way he takes the helmet off, it reminds me a lot of Khan's introduction to Star Trek Two, Because when we first see Khan, it's him in that giant helmet, which looks a little like a diving bell kind of helmet. And then he takes it off, and then we see him. And to me, it's like, that's... I, I Again, I have to think whether uh, Nicholas Meyer saw this movie. I wouldn't Meyer. No, no relation, I guess. Uh, I have to think that Nicholas Meyer <laughs> saw, that, saw this movie and relate. Because it, it made me think of Khan when I saw... Uh, Nemo when, in that get-up in the first time. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it would be necessarily an homage, but it right. definitely could be a uh, subliminal thing on his part. Like Maybe he didn't even realize that's why he shot it that way. Yeah, it's a great reveal for a bad guy, you know, to see to see him in that outfit and he takes the helmet off and you're like, oh, okay, now that's that's over. It's Captain Nemo. It's fantastic. Yeah, this whole thing moves. It's great. I'm watching the, uh, the scene of them eating the dinner, uh, which is... <laughs> I love that while Mason and Lucas are going through all these important dialogue, Kirk Douglas is still being seen as he's staring at, at, at all the spoonfuls of food and looking absolutely disgusted. He's just, he's stealing every moment. And I, it, it took me the second or third time to see that there's actually like a fish in the bowl in the middle, like the centerpiece. Yep, yep. There's actually like a live fish in there. Yeah. <laughs> and Peter Lloyd looks like he's got to throw up. He's putting his, <laughs> he's putting his napkin up to his mouth. It looks like he's going to puke, so... It's 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 also a very funny movie too. You know, it's got a lot of really good laughs in it. It really is like you mentioned, like an all family kind of adventure, and it really does have something like a little something for everybody. Yeah, and um, I can't believe it's taken us this long. But can we please talk about the squid? We have to talk about the squid. The, the big set piece <laughs> is when uh, they they come across this giant squid, and it is one of the most amazing ac- action sequences ever put to film. Apparently, it was originally shot. Uh, it's supposed to be like around uh, sundown, Correct. And, yes. and just in like clear skies. And then they watched the footage and realized that it just didn't work. And so they reshot the entire thing, which had to be massively expensive. But I said D- Disney wanted to spare no expense. Yeah, that that sequence of them fighting off the squid is like every adventure kids' adventure story come to life. I mean, is it the, the from the from the uh, the the prop? Squid looks absolutely perfect. I mean, all of this said, the later scenes done in the rain. It looks, it's just absolutely flawless. It, it's funny. Um, as much as I visually, I do think it would have been amazing to see like that red, orange, yellow sunset with the squid. I do think it would have been amazing, but they actually have some footage on the DVD. But yeah, they made the exact correct choice. Because the darkness, the rain, it definitely hides, you know, some of the wires, some right. of the special effects. It, it does make it look 
more realistic. And I, you know, it's obviously it's not CGI. It's all practical effects. But like you said, like, I think it looks amazing. I think it still holds up as an action sequence. I just think it's spectacular. Oh, it's flawless. It's flawless. I love you see when Nemo has got the harpoon and you even see like the little mouth, like the little pincer mouth moving. (laughs) And it looks, I mean, it looks genuinely terrifying. I mean, it said it's, I can't imagine how many operators they must have had to, you know, all these arms and legs flailing around and all this. It must have been a bitch to shoot, but it looks perfect. It just looks absolutely, I said, it, you couldn't. I would say you would not improve this with CGI. You would not, because there's something. Again, I don't want to be like an old fart and be all like, you know, practical effects are better. But I just there's something about that you know that this is literally this creature that they're dra- that they're 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 dropping all the tentacles on. These are real live actors. These guys are in boats in water. It's real wind. I mean, this is all really happening. I think I'm, I might be glad I didn't see this as a little, little kid, because I think that could scare me. That pincer, oh my gosh, I think it's so scary. Yeah, it looks like it just eat you. It could just eat you. This thing could just swallow you. And then when they hack off one of the arms, like, again, it's like, you know, amazing. It's amazing to look at. And it look, when it grabs Nemo and starts dragging him down, and it's only because uh, Ned saves him. I mean, it's fantastic. It, that scene definitely is one of the easily top 10 action sequences of all time. Yeah, it looks I love when when Nemo is being pulled down and he's like desperately trying to grab onto like the the metal railing of the the of the the sub and he's flailing around and he actually looks terrified, which I love. I love that whole thing because Mason is so reserved as he was in almost in all of his movies. He's kind of like very well, I should say the Star Wars, Star Wars, he's goes nuts in that movie but like he was kind of he's very nemo is is so in control of everything and then when you get to see him here flailing for his life uh it really it's a great you know it's an interesting take on the guy what we've seen to this point well and the great thing about this like this is a great action sequence no doubt about it but it adds so much to his character right because ned rescues him and what that means in his mind, because he, he admits he, he would not have rescued Ned, but Ned rescued him. So, like, mentally, what does that do to someone who is the captain, who is in control of all these men? And he's been, quote unquote, bested by someone because he needed to be rescued by Ned. Yeah, I love it when uh, when Ned stands there and he pulls out the knife uh, and he's ready to jump in and said that it's the scene underwater where he literally hacks the mm-hmm. the arm off and we see it we see a big hunk of it fall off which again yeah. is pretty grisly for a Disney movie again 1954 <laughs> imagine taking like a six year old to this movie <laughs> that's why I said I, I could see you know for, for me it was the Wicked Witch of the West when I looked ah, in and yes. she terrified me I think this would be equally scary yeah yeah it said it's, uh, it, it, it really works flawlessly uh, Richard Fleischer, again, did an amazing job. And one thing, uh, you alluded earlier about how often I've been to Disney World. This squid scene always makes me think about Disney World because uh, my first trip to Disney World was 1984. And at the end of Space Mountain, they had uh, like a moving walkway and you would go through like a house of the future. And one of the things the home had was I'm pretty sure it was a video disc player. I don't even think it was a laser disc player. I think it was a video disc player. And the family was watching the squid attack scene in their own home from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, wow. I remember I went to that exhibit. I don't remember that detail. That's great. 
That's oh, that's fantastic. And I, and even though I hadn't seen Twenty Thousand, I was so jealous. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're watching a movie whenever they want in their living room. <laughs> the future. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, I, uh, I've. I'm so sorry I didn't get to see that exhibit now. You know, like I really you're very frustrated. Uh, after after the uh, the whole sequence with the the squid, eventually he said Ned takes command of services the Nautilus. He hits a reef in the process. Uh, Nemo uh, gets shot in the back from uh, these uh, from this uh, army, but because they have a bunch of they're surrounding uh, his uh, his his base again. He's got a base on Volcania. He's got like a, he's got his henchman. He's got his uh, you know like a supervillain base. He gets shot in the back and he slowly dies. And he decides to go down with his ship and his crew goes down with them. He, they, they decide to stay with Nemo. They're, they would rather go down with the ship and with their captain uh, than, than go live on. Again, it's a pretty heavy thing for a Disney movie. De- definitely. Um, and it's, it's funny because like talking about this now, you're thinking, that's crazy. These people would never do that. But it, it actually is believable because, because of him rescuing them from the prison island and how they are. It is amazing. The only thing, and obviously I love this movie. <laughs> if it has a fault, it is amazing to me that Captain Nemo shot, you know, you, you, you see the blood on the back of his jacket, but as he's helming the Nautilus, the man right beside him just has the most blank expression on his <laughs> face. I, I would think he know Captain Nemo was shot, but he's just, Steering along with a little help over here. Anybody want to give me a bandage, something? If and, yeah. it, it, if, if there's like a point oh five disbelief, that was it for me. <laughs> I can see that. I can understand that. It is kind of uh, amazing to think of that in the book, uh, Nemo's death is not expressly, you know, revealed. They they allude to the fact that he died, but he doesn't die because Chrissy comes back in Mysterious Island. But in the movie. Nemo absolutely dies, which is, you know, that's usually the reverse. Usually in the, uh, you know, the book, the characters definitely die because the writer is like, ah, I'm not going to do a sequel to this. And it's in the movie version that they're like, oh, we should leave it open. But Disney decided, no, 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 because Mysterious Island, the movie, which features Captain Nemo, not played by James Mason, uh, does, that's not a Disney film. This was, you know, this was their, this was Disney's one sole uh, entry in the Captain Nemo universe. Yeah, I'm. I'm surprised. I'm even. Even Ned. Like further adventures of Ned Land never happened. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean Kirk Douglas get him and he, he did all kinds of crazy adventures. Why not? You know, I, Disney never really seemed to to make a lot of sequels up until like later on, of course. But you know what I mean? Like all their. I guess they did like what Son of Flubber and a couple other they, ones. But for the most part, they cut their movies were all sort of one offs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a few exceptions, um, you know, some of the cartoon shorts, the Three Little Pigs, they have, you know, some of those spinoffs. But, yeah, he was not – I think he was content to do something to completion, and then I think he just wanted to go on to the next thing as a producer. Mm. Uh, this movie won Oscars for Best Art Direction and Special Effects, completely deserved, obviously. Uh, but other than that, I mean, didn't get anything for acting because, again, I think they considered this a Disney film and, you know, not, it wasn't just thought of in that regard. But that, and that's too bad because, as I said, there are, it's, you know, there are some really great performances here. I mean, I get, they might, it might be overlooked because the visuals are so sumptuous, 
But again, I think Douglas is great in. Mason is particularly really good. So you know, I, but it was a giant hit. So I mean, Disney got out got out of it what they wanted. And one thing I want to point out uh, is something that you will love is uh, the matte paintings featured in the movie. Uh, Peter Ellenshaw is a pretty famous matte artist. Oh yeah, I've heard of him. Sure. And he did, I believe, three matte paintings um, at the beginning when. Uh, Ned is shown um, coming up to the people who are telling the, the stories about the monster. There's a scene chock-a-block full of ships. That is a matte painting. When you see a Volcania, that is a matte painting as well. That's the, beautiful. The, Volcania the ship, is beautiful. The ship in the middle is actually being filmed, but the surrounding area is all matte painting. And uh, the prison camp is a matte painting. Oh, is it? Oh, I guess, it, yeah, I guess it would have to be the first, because, no, oh, my God, yeah, oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, geez. <laughs> what do you think of the scene of where uh, Ned gets chased by the natives? It's probably not, maybe maybe um, the, the one moment that some people, from a modern perspective, kind of go, because, like, all the natives chase, their are cannibals, and they chase Ned into the ship, and then uh, uh, Nemo has the defense systems with all the electrical voltage and, he, and and they all start jumping uncontrollably it's it's the one part i think maybe some people from a modern perspective kind of go uh, this is not the most dignified moment for some of these actors i love the fact that the nautilus is electrified as a defense mechanism that part is illustrated very well yes. through animation um i know what you mean um to be optimistic it does remind me a little bit of indiana jones because mm-hmm. he's run, running away from a group but like you said, it is it is something that I wish I don't know. I guess I just wish they were maybe dressed a little bit differently or yeah. acted a little bit differently. It's um, the one moment of, of watching Kirk Douglas and Peter Laurie like laughing at all the, the dark skinned quote unquote savages that they just right. executed. You're a little like now. However, like I, I do, I easily can see how it can be read as offensive very easily. However. The setup for the scene where Ned is, you know, roaming, roaming through the jungle and he reaches down and tries to goes for a drink and then looks up and sees like the heads on the spike. I think that's fantastic. Oh, right. I mean, the scene of, of the, 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 the natives chasing Ned again, right out of Indiana Jones and that opening yeah. scene, you know, where the, the Jovitos, it's exact. I mean, even some of the shots are similar. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, and again, and do, I do love that the ship is electrified. Like this thing is like the Batmobile, you know, it has <laughs> so many cool things. I, I really, I mean, I don't know what we're going to be getting for the Aquaman movie. I'm guessing you're, I don't know how excited you are about it. Uh, to come out, but I mean, I really wish that there was in some alternate universe an Aquaman movie that looked like this. This just right. this. If I had seen this as a kid and it had started Aquaman and Black Mana, this would be my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> easily, easily. Yeah, I mean, again, a Manta ship. This would have just been oh, the most awesome thing in the world. So, yeah, this this movie is a really delightful adventure. It, I would say it is entertainment for all ages, and that's sometimes considered a bad thing because mm-hmm. you know people think oh well, it's, it's sort of toothless but it really is it it has i mean yeah it strips all of Verne's political commentary out but i mean i don't know i think i don't think it can be expected when you're making a disney film but i think walt really had something in mind here and he put together a great team and said richard fleischer does an amazing job with the direction uh, it is just beautiful from beginning to end the sets are just rem- 
remarkable. It moves at a great pace. The performances are all great. And and I said I was so glad I got a chance to see this on the big screen. I would see it again. This is one of these movies that if they ran it regularly, I would go see it because it just is so much fun to see big. It would have to look fantastic on that screen. And again, think about that. Think about that a prop squid from, what, 70 years ago at this point, 60 years ago, still looks really good. I mean, there are movies made 10 years ago where the effects don't look very good nowadays. And and yet this rubber squid that they made still holds up perfectly. It's like, you know, well done, fellas. I agree. Yeah, it's a really, really terrific movie. So, uh, I don't know. Is there anything else we want to say about 20 Thousand Leagues Under the Sea before we sign off, Sean? There is one more thing I want to let you know. Um, you were I talked about Operation Undersea, the documentary. Right. Uh, that is available to rent on YouTube. It's actually available through iTunes. You can buy or rent. But I'm asking everyone who's listening to me to check with your local library. And if you don't have a library card, sign up and make sure that you sign up for Hoopla, which is a library's digital service, because then you can watch Operation Undersea for free. Please support your libraries. I've totally endorsed that sentiment. Absolutely, yes. You should, everybody should be using their local libraries. I use it a lot for movies here on the show. If there's some movie that uh, that I you know I want to talk about on the show, I see if I can get it in my library, and I almost always can. So absolutely support that vote. Very cool. Well, Sean, um, thank you so much, man. This is this has been great. I know you said I you you put up these things on your Facebook page where you let people vote which Disney film. Uh, you're going to watch out of a weekend, which is always fun. Uh, But this is just such a terrific movie, and it should be, like, more famous than it is, uh, I think, because I think maybe younger kids just haven't seen it. But I think you're right, that when Disney finally does their streaming service, I hope that they this becomes, like, a staple, because I think kids will just love it. It's just a fantastic watch. Yeah, absolutely. So, very cool. Well, again, thank you so much for coming back on. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've been a friend to me on the Aquaman Shrine for so many years, so it's always, great to, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, you can find back episodes of the show on our network site, which is Fire and Water Podcast. Dot com And we're always talking about movies and stuff over on Twitter, which is at Film and Water Pod. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, that's a wrap. Got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads. A whale of a tale or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved. On nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tale and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Mermaid Minnie. Met her down in Madagascar, she would kiss me any time that I would ask her. Then one evening, her flame of love blew out. Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. Got a whale of a tail to tell you last, a whale of a tail or two. Got the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's so true, I swear by my tattoo. There was Typhoon Tessie. Met her on the coast of Java when we kissed. I bubbled up like molten lava. Then she gave me the scare of my young life. Blow me down and pick me up. She was the captain's wife. Got a whale of a tail to tell you, boys. A whale of a tail or two. By the flapping fish and the girls I've loved. On nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true. I swear by my tattoo. There was Harpoon Hannah, had a face that made you shudder, lips like fish hooks, and a nose just like a rudder. 
Sea monster big enough to ever frighten me. Got a whale of a tail to tell you, lad. The whale of a tail or two. About the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. Whale of a tail, and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. 